Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. We had a group of students that went to Passion in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago, and, and they came back um, passionate about this ministry. So they sat in my office for about two hours a couple of weeks ago and had this vision for what they wanted to do here in Troop County. So I'm going to let them tell you a little bit about what God's doing in their hearts. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mackenzie Hudson. I have Jake Murphy, Joanna Renson House, and Peyton Cardos with me. Um, like Adam said, we did go to this Christian conference in Atlanta, and we just came back really just burdened and broken for the 27 million people in our world that are in slavery. And it's not just happening across the globe. It's in 161 countries, but it's happening in the U.S. It's happening in Hogansville and Atlanta and cities and towns all around us. People are trapped in labor and sex trafficking, and we wanted to do something about it. So we started throwing around an idea when we were meeting with Adam, and um, we checked into actually renting the square or getting permission to use the square March 8th and 9th, and we have. So we will be on, out at the square March 8th and 9th, and we're going to stand for freedom for these people that are trapped in slavery. And we want to stress it's not just students. We want adults. We want the entire body of Christ under this banner of freedom. And this is ultimately to point to Jesus Christ, because if you're in Christ, then he has freed you first. He's freed you from your sin, and we want to see other people freed from the bonds of slavery. Jake's going to tell you a little more about some of the information and facts on slavery now. Good morning. Slavery exists. Modern-day slavery is a real issue that needs to be addressed, and it needs to be dealt with. There are over 200,000 people working in America today as slaves. Over 161 countries are affected by the evil of slavery. Slavery alone breaks in over $32 billion annually in revenue. That's more than mega corporations like Google. And to wrap our mind around how much money is being made off these human beings who are being held as slaves, each slave on average can be bought for $90. That means $90 is destined them to a lifetime of waking up in a brothel, of waking up to carry 70 pounds of bricks on their head for hours at a time, waking up to go into the dangerous mines to collect the metals that power our smartphones, our laptops, and the minerals that make the makeup that women wear shiny and glossy. Just as these free, like they, these slaves deserve freedom just from bondage, the physical bonds, they also deserve the freedom in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the best part about it is, is that if you don't have the money to give and you don't have the resources to give, it doesn't cost a dime to get involved in what we're doing. The main thing is, is that we raise awareness. You can come stand with us, which Joanna's going to tell you more about. You can fight through social media. You can fight through the local and the national government. But the most important thing we do is just ring the bell to the world that slavery exists. Hey, I'm Joanna, and I'm going to tell you more about how each of you personally can get involved. 
Mackenzie told you about how we went to Passion and we had this vision, and Jake told you more about some facts of slavery. But I'm going to tell you what you can do right now. You can join us on Facebook, Troop County, Stand for Freedom. You can go to IntimMovement.com and sign a pledge. You can go to, this video was done by IJM, International Justice Mission. You can go to their website, IJM.org, and get more information about slavery. And there is a hotline that's called Polaris Project. And I have the number for it if you want to come see me afterwards. Mackenzie just said that there is slavery existing. Even in Hogansville, we talked to someone just a few minutes ago who said that they busted something in Hogansville. So this is not something that's only happening in far-off countries. It's happening really close to us. We also want to stress to you guys that this is not, you do not have to physically stand for 27 hours. We just need you to come out as much as you can and spend some time with us to raise awareness about slavery. And the four of us do not have the time and resources that we need to make this happen, to make our vision happen. So we need you guys to donate your time or resources. If you can, please email us at troopcountystandforfreedom at gmail.com or come talk to us afterwards and we can help sign you up. Please plan to join us Friday, March 8th at 4 p.m. through Saturday the 9th at 7 p.m. to stand for freedom and shine a light on slavery. Thank you. These guys are obviously very excited about this, so you be in prayer for them. We'll, we'll be hearing more about that, and uh, hopefully we'll see some of you guys on the square on March the 8th and 9th, standing for freedom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of study. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We pray, Father, that it would be so much more than just um, academic for us, Lord. We pray it would be more than just words on a page, but we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. You would transform us through this study more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. So I hear there's a, there's a, a football game tonight or something. Is that, is that right? Anybody, anybody aware of that, the football game? Yeah, a couple of people are aware. Any, any predictions on the winner? Silence. Wow, I like that. Yeah. I should try that at home with my kids, see if they'd be quiet, right? No, no. A couple of good teams playing, good defenses, some interesting storylines. I started reading this week a little bit because if you're, if you're not familiar with the Super Bowl, it's, it's, it's pretty much a media extravaganza now, right? I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, for the last two weeks, you've heard all about the Super Bowl, you've read about the Super Bowl, you've seen it on TV. And so I did a little research. I was curious about the first Super Bowl. The first Super Bowl was played in 1967. And if you don't know this, a lot has changed at the Super Bowl over the last 40 plus years. In fact, the first Super Bowl was played in Los Angeles in the Coliseum. The Coliseum seats about 90,000 people. Only about 60,000 showed up for the first Super Bowl. So there are 30,000 seats unsold. The tickets for the first Super Bowl were $12 a piece. Yeah, wouldn't you like to have gone back in 1967 and buy some Super Bowl tickets? And it was such a big deal at that time <laughs> that two networks covered it. They videoed it, and it was such a big deal to them that after the game was over, they both erased their tapes of the game. That's how big of a deal the Super Bowl was. So there's actually no video footage of the first Super Bowl in 1967. Now, football's changed a lot since that first Super Bowl. We understand that things have, have gotten faster, athletes are bigger, they're stronger, there's more strategy involved than ever before and videos and computers and, and all sorts of things have changed over the last many years in football. But there's one thing that from the beginning in football in the NFL, 
any college football, there's, there's one thing that's never changed. For all the increases and all the things that they do better and all the technology and all the speed and all the size, there's one thing that's never changed. These teams, all those years ago, all the way up through the present, and the two teams that will be playing tonight in the Super Bowl have one goal that's never changed. The ultimate goal, every time one of those teams takes the field, is to ultimately do what? You say it. Win. Right. They know the goal, right? And so they do all sorts of things to try to get to that point. Their ultimate goal, the thing they want to do above all things, is to win. And the only stat that will actually matter in tonight's Super Bowl is the final score. The goal is victory. Now let's change gears for just a second. Let's think about the church. What's the goal of the church? Because a lot of things have changed in churches in the last 40 plus years as well, right? I mean, worship styles have changed. Sermon styles have changed. Building design has changed. Dress code has changed. Lots and lots of things have changed over the last many years for the church. But the question remains, of all the things that have changed of all the ways we do ministry different than we did 40, 50, 60 years ago, what's the goal of the church? Now, I think we can make a pretty compelling argument based on the teachings of Scripture that there's one goal that we see over and over and over again. And if we're not doing that thing right, if we're not doing it well, if we're not meeting that goal, then I would argue that we will ultimately fail in our calling as a church. Now, I want you to understand very clearly this morning, there are lots of things that the church ought to be doing. But I think we can make a compelling case from Scripture that the one thing the church better do well if it wants to continue to reach people for Christ is make disciples. I think of all the things that we do, we better be sold out and we better have a very clear vision for making disciples. Now, you may remember that when Christ, just before he ascended into heaven in Matthew chapter 28, he gathered all of his followers and his disciples, and he gave what's become known as the Great Commission. I think we've got that verse up. Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, Christ gathers his followers around, and he says, therefore go and what? Say it, the next two words. Make disciples. There it is, right? Wow. I've never seen that before in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, don't, don't change it yet. Keep it right there, Stephen. Now, I think what a lot of churches do is we, we get to this passage of Scripture, and we, we, we use this passage of Scripture to explain evangelism and to talk about the importance of going and witnessing and sharing and leading people to Christ and baptizing. And that is exactly right. We're not wrong in doing that. We should encourage people and challenge people to move forward based on this passage of Scripture. By the way, it doesn't say go and sit. <laughs> go. You need to do something, right? Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But here's the problem with no churches. We get to the point of baptism and evangelism, and we think that's the end. So I've shared Christ with this person. I've, I've talked to them about who Jesus is. They've prayed to receive Christ. We've baptized them. Amen. We're done. Let's move on to the next person. The problem with that is that's not what Christ intended this passage to mean. Christ didn't intend this passage to simply mean we baptize people and then we're done. We move on to the next person. Christ intended this passage to mean that we baptize people as the beginning 
And then, Stephen, go to the next part. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Christ says you need to go and make disciples by first baptizing. That's the initial step. And then once you baptize them, you need to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Christ says the ultimate call of the church is to make disciples. Now, as we think about the NFL, and we think about football, and we think about the Super Bowl tonight, we understand that these teams have spent and will continue to spend millions and millions and millions and ultimately billions of dollars to win. And when they don't win, they fire coaches, they bring in new coaches, they bring in new players, they bring in new schemes, they bring in new strategies. They do anything and everything possible to win. So here's the challenge we have to ask ourselves this morning. How serious is the church about making disciples? If you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. There it is. Small little book written by Paul, about 60 AD. Written to the church at Colossae, ultimately to combat false teachings. And Paul is going to give us in Colossians 1 verse 28 a very clear picture of what discipleship ought to look like. It's very short, it's very simple, but it's foundational as we try to understand exactly what Christ would have us to do as we consider the challenge of making disciples. Colossians chapter 1, I think we have it, bring it up if you would, Colossians chapter 1 verse 28. This is Paul speaking to the church at Colossae. We proclaim him, now that's Christ, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Now let's read that. It's just a short little verse. Let's read it again. We're going to think through it this morning together. We proclaim him, that's Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Now I'm going to argue there are three steps to this discipleship process. And I'm going to argue that they build upon one another and we need to begin with a certain process and if we walk through the process, we'll ultimately end up in the right spot. But the first point of the process I want you to understand, the first step we need to see as we think about making disciples is number one, the first thing that Paul teaches is that mature believers must be teaching young believers about Christ. Paul says mature believers must be teaching younger believers about Christ. Paul says very clearly, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone. Now, built into this verse are two separate ideas. The first idea, of course, is the teacher. We see that it's clear in the passage of Scripture. We need to be teaching people. But here's the interesting thing about being a teacher. You can't actually teach unless you have a what? A student, right? You've got to have somebody there that you can teach. I mean, if you stand up to teach and nobody shows up, you're kind of wasting your time, right? And so kind of built into this passage of Scripture is certainly an understanding that we first of all need a teacher, and a lot goes with that we're going to talk about. We also need a student. So if you're thinking to yourself, okay, what's the difference? What what do these two people look like? What are these two groups of people doing? Well, I want to tell you what they look like. First, the teacher. The teacher ought to be a mature believer that understands Christ and understands the Scripture and has been able to and will continue to lead a life that brings honor and glory to Christ. A mature believer is a person who's known Christ for a long time, who's raised a godly family, who has a godly marriage, 
who we're not saying doesn't struggle with certain things, but has lived their life in such a way that brings honor and glory to God, a person that, is, that has known Christ for a number of years and has studied and prayed, a person that's well-respected. And within this congregation right now, within our church, there are many, many mature believers. If you are a mature believer in Christ, if you've been a Christian for a number of years and have lived your life to bring Him honor and glory as best you can, you should be training and teaching younger believers. That's the model of discipleship. Now, I'm sure the question is already forming in your mind or the concern is already forming in your mind. Here's what you're saying. Adam, I, I get that, but I'm not a teacher. <laughs> Adam, if you're, if you're about to ask me to teach a Sunday school class, here's the sign-up sheet. I'm, I'm not doing it, right? I can't stand up in front of a large group of people and teach. That's just not my calling. Great, I'm not asking you to do that. I'm not asking you to teach a Sunday school class. I'm not asking you to get up in front of a group of people and, and teach them about Christ. But here's what I am asking you to do. If you can't do it in front of a large group, you ought to do it to a small group. You ought to do it to one or to two people. You say, what, what, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. A mature believer recognizes that there's a young believer somewhere in the midst, whatever that looks like in your circle of friends or in your life or you see people in the congregation, whatever it looks like, you recognize that there's a younger believer a believer that's immature and needs to grow. And you go to that young believer and you say, you know what, if you're willing and you have this same desire, I'd like to begin to meet with you on some sort of a regular basis. It could be once a week, it could be twice a month, it could be once a month, whatever that looks like, however you work out that schedule. But we're going to meet together and we're going to begin to pray together. And we're going to begin to read the Word of God together. And we're going to begin to study together. And I'm going to begin as a mature believer to pour into your life I'm going to help you understand who Christ is and what Christ ought to do. I'm going to help you understand how to raise a godly family. I'm going to understand how to, man, I'm going to help you understand how to be a godly husband and how to lead your wife. I'm going to help you understand how to navigate through the pitfalls of job and career and still maintain your Christianity. I want to help you walk along. I want to help you down this course. I want to help you in your journey to understand exactly who Christ is and exactly what Christ has done. And you begin to pour into that learner. You begin to pour into that immature Christian. You begin to pour into that new believer to help them understand, to teach them of exactly who Christ is. Now, some of you are, are, are hearing this this morning. You're thinking, well, that's a great model for the mature believer, but I, I'm going to admit, Adam, I'm not a mature believer. I'm not where I should be. Maybe I just accepted Christ a month or two or a year ago. Or maybe I accepted Christ 20 years ago, and I'm just being dead level honest, Adam. I just hadn't grown in my faith. I'm just not where I need to be. And I probably wouldn't have announced this to the world, but Adam, I'm, I'm positive in my heart that I'm an immature believer. If you're one of those people, you need to find somebody that you would respect, somebody that you would look up to, somebody that you would consider a mature believer, and you need to go to that person. You need to say, listen, I'm not where I need to be. I'm not doing the things I need to do, and I see you, and I see your life, and I see all that you represent. I'd love to begin to, to meet with you and to pray with you and to think with you what life ought to be like and how I need to grow in Christ and how I need to mature. And you need to begin to walk with that mature believer to understand exactly all Christ has called you to do. This one-on-one -on -one model of discipleship is exactly what we see all through Scripture. I'll never forget when I was in college, I, I, I would come home on the weekends and I would, I would go to church with my parents. And I had the privilege of growing up in a godly home with a mother and a father that loved the Lord. And it's, it's, it amazes me more and more young adults that I talk to, especially about marriage and about moving forward in a career, more and more adults that I talk to, young adults especially, that grew up in a home without a dad, without a man who was a godly role model and a godly influence. And so, so those young men and those young women need role models. They need to see somebody model the Christian faith in their life. 
They need you to pour into them and teach them truth and help them to navigate through the journey to do all the things that Christ has called them to do. But when I was in college, I would come home and I'll never forget, we were in a really, really small church growing up, a, a very small church, way smaller than even this service. And I would come home every week with my parents and our pastor at that point, Gary Howard, had decided he was going to teach the college class. Now, I was the only college student, <laughs> Right? Now, if you know anything about teaching Sunday school, if you've ever taught before teachers in public schools, if you teach Sunday school, whatever, you know what goes into preparation, don't you? You understand that. If you really care about what you're doing, you pour into it. And you study and you pray. And if you've ever been in a position where you studied and prayed and poured into it and you show up on Sunday morning and one person shows up, that can be very disheartening. That can be very difficult for you. But Gary Howard, to his credit, was faithful. And so every Sunday morning, I would show up, just me, and he would teach me the Word of God. And we would study together. And we would pray together. And we just kind of talked about life together. Now, I, praise the Lord, had a godly father and a godly mother in my home. So Gary didn't show me the only things in Scripture. My dad had shown me these things. But Gary came along beside me and undergirded me and built into that foundation to help me understand exactly who Christ was and to help me understand exactly what Christ had called me to do. And I will never forget Gary's faithfulness. I will never forget what he meant to me in those formidable years of my life when he spoke truth into my life. And he continued to point me to Scripture. And he continued to point me to the Lord. And he continued to point me to, to the certain direction I need to go to do the things that would be glorifying to Christ. But here's the problem with our generation. There are scores and scores of young adults that don't have that. There are young people right now, even in this congregation, that don't have that. They don't have that mature believer that speaks into their lives. They don't have that mature believer that speaks into their heart. They don't have that mature believer that's walking along beside them to help them navigate and understand everything that God has called them to be. See, this is, this is the model that, that Christ used. It's interesting to me as I think back about the life of Christ and I think about how he did it and I think how I would never have done it the way he did it. <laughs> if the Lord had said to me, hey, by the way, I'm going to send Christ to the earth, I need you to help me figure out how to get the message out. Sure, well, let's, let, let's get him all around the world. Let's get him in front of big crowds, right? Let's get him to talk to government officials and get on the same page with them. And so his message could go out through all the official channels and let's let him stand up in front of all these people and proclaim and let's do all these things so that everybody hears his message. Now, to be sure, Christ spent time speaking to large groups. We know that. But Christ's model was ultimately to pour into a small group of people, wasn't it? That was his plan. He spent time with the masses, but his heart's desire, as we read the Scripture, was always to get away just with the twelve. Why? Because he understood the importance of that small group. He understood that one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And so we read Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Jesus went home on a mountainside and called to them those he wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve. That's it. Designated them apostles that they might be with him and they might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And so for the next two and a half to three years, these men followed Christ around, and they, they watched him teach, and they watched him preach, and they lived with him, and, and they, he, they ate with him, and they, they asked him questions, and they spent their time just watching him be Jesus. And he didn't have some book where he checked things off the list. He didn't have some book where they did fill-ins, and all those, those things are okay, but Christ understood the model of, I'm just going to spend time with these believers. I'm going to spend time with these immature guys, and I'm going to teach them my ways. 
I'm going to teach them my heart. I'm going to lead them, and I'm going to guide them. And by the way, guys, when I ascend into heaven here in a couple years, you got it to yourself. This model that I've left for you to disciple and train on a small group level, that's the way Christianity's got to spread. That's the way we've got to reach people for Christ. It's interesting if you study through Scripture, you see all sorts of examples of the importance of teaching all sorts of examples of the importance of learning, of hiding God's word in our heart. We've seen Deuteronomy 6 already, the, the importance of teaching within the home and explaining to our children who Christ is and how to grow in our faith and how to live for him and how to be godly examples in all the world. But here, here's the problem we run into as we think about this discipleship model. We've got to have people that are willing to teach and we've got to have people that are willing to learn. If all we ever do is take a look at words on a page, then this never actually does any good. And so I'm going to challenge you right now, wherever you are in your faith, wherever you are in that spectrum, if you're mature or if you're immature, find somebody that you can either train or find somebody that can train you to walk in faith, to grow in faith, to learn what it means to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice something about this passage of scriptures. We think about mature believers teaching younger believers. That's really just the first step. Take a look again at Colossians 1.28. Paul says, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone. So there's step one. Right? We've, got to, we've got to begin the process by teaching and by training. These mature believers need to begin to pour into the lives of immature younger believers. That's step one. So we admonish and teach everyone. But watch this. With all wisdom. There's our second step. We're not just teaching for teaching's sake. The second thing we notice is that we must teach with wisdom. We must teach, we must teach with wisdom. Now, wisdom can be defined like this. Wisdom can be defined as the ability to apply knowledge in order to make good decisions. In other words, wisdom is you take all the knowledge and the information that you have and you take that knowledge and you begin to apply that knowledge to your life. And as you begin to apply that knowledge, if you make good choices and godly choices, that's wise. That's what wisdom is. It's kind of like a map or a GPS, right? You, you plug the GPS in your car and you stick it to the dash, right? And if you're like me, you have to lick it four or five times and restick it because it keeps falling off, right? But you stick it up to the dash, you get it turned on, get it plugged in. You push the button, right? And it, there's all the knowledge in the world in that GPS, right? All you've got to do is what? Apply it. I just got to follow the directions. It's ridiculous to think about having this GPS and having these directions, just ignoring it, right? Oh, I can just see myself driving that road to my wife. Oh, Amy, you know, I know what it's saying, but honey, I've got the right, I know the solution here. I've got the shortcut. So the GPS can just continue to talk in its British accent or whatever. It can continue to tell us where to turn. I know where I'm going, okay? I know what I'm doing here, right? It's foolishness. The idea is to take the knowledge that we have, to take that knowledge and apply it to our lives. That's wisdom, and that's where this godly, mature believer comes alongside the immature believer and says, look, here's all the information you have. Here's all the knowledge in your brain. Here's how you now begin to apply that to your life to live a godly life. That's kind of a different model for us in the 21st century. But for the Jewish person, this was something they did on a regular basis. So they would go to their rabbi or to one of the local teachers and they would say to them, I need you to mentor me. I need you to disciple me. And so these followers, these, these Jewish followers would go to the rabbi and they would literally sit under the teaching of the rabbi for years and they would be trained to understand the teachings of Judaism. They'd be trained to understand what they should know and how they should apply it. So for the early century Jewish person, this made a lot of sense. 
And when Christ called these disciples, these followers, to follow him and to become his disciples, they understood it, they kind of got it. But for us, it's a little bit different, isn't it? For us, it takes a little more effort. For us, it takes a, uh, a little more uh, of a job to try to figure out how we connect and how we make those, those uh, relationships work and how we kind of find the context where we can study together and read together and pray together. But, but I think we, we have to understand that if we're going to grow in Christ, if we're going to do all the things that Christ has called us to do, this model is something we've got to be able to understand and it's a model that we've got to be able to adopt you know, I started thinking this week about what wisdom looked like in the life of a person. Because we can talk about teaching and knowledge, and we can talk about wisdom all we want to, but I started thinking, well, what's a wise person look like? How does a wise person act? And, and, and if you're like me, the first person that came to my mind was my granddaddy, right? I mean, for me, my granddaddy was just a wise person, right? Maybe you've got an uncle or a grandmother or a family member, father, whatever, but there's this person, right, in your life over the years that you look to and you just thought, man, that person was wise. Like for my granddaddy, I just felt like he had all the answers, right? I felt like he could fix anything. I mean, anything that broke, he could fix it. Any question I had, he could answer. He may have been making it all up for all I know, but I was 10. It made sense to me. I thought he was the wisest man in the world. But I look back on my granddaddy's life now as an adult. My grandfather didn't finish the sixth grade. <laughs> he lived during the Depression like so many relatives that we have. And he had to quit school at a very young age to go to work to literally put food on the table for his family. So wisdom is not always about our knowledge. It's about how we apply that knowledge to our lives, you understand? And my granddaddy had lived that way for decade after decade after decade. And he, he had a certain amount of knowledge, but he took that knowledge and he applied it wisely to his life so that he could understand exactly how he should live and begin to train me in the way that I should live. And some of you are thinking, well, that's an interesting model, Adam, but I don't know that I've got wisdom. I'm not sure I could translate that wisdom to anybody else. Because, Adam, I've made mistakes. I've done stupid stuff in the past. I've done things that I wish I hadn't have done. I wish I could correct it, but I can't go back now. I can't do anything about what I've done in the past. And I'm just not sure I've got wisdom to do what you're asking me to do. Well, I want you to find hope in Christ. I want you to understand that even if you don't have wisdom, James 1.5 teaches us this. It's very clear. If any of you lacks wisdom, and that's all of us on some level, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So here's the question we ask ourselves. How often are we praying for wisdom? How often are we praying that God would give us the ability to take all this knowledge we have of who he is and all this knowledge of scripture and translate that knowledge into action? How often are we praying, God, let me make wise, godly decisions for you. Let me do things that bring you honor and bring you glory. Because the model that Paul gives us here begins with this idea of teaching, mature teaching unbelievers or teaching young believers. It's, a, it's an idea of knowledge of Christ. But the second step is we have to understand those mature believers begin to teach wisdom, teach these young, immature believers how to be wise and how to make godly choices. But then there's, there's a third part of this process. Look at the verse again. Colossians 1.28 says this, We proclaim him, again, that's Paul, admonishing and teaching everyone. That's the first thing we do. That's the beginning process. With all wisdom, that's the second process. Now watch this. We do these things so that, right? In other words, there's a reason we're doing this, right? We're going to teach, we're going to train, we're going to help people understand how to be wise and how to make godly decisions. We do those things so that, what? We may present everyone perfect in Christ. See, the ultimate goal is for us to grow up in 
Christ. Here's the third point. If we teach and train, if we have mature believers helping immature believers be wise and make godly decisions, the third point we notice is that we are perfected in Christ. That's our goal. Our goal as mature believers is to take the immature believers, to walk along beside them, to train them, to teach them, to help them see the wisdom of who God is and how to apply that knowledge to their lives. When we do those things, those young, immature believers grow up and are perfected in Christ. Now, I want to be clear here. This word perfect, sometimes we see it and we think, well, that's that's not me because I'm far from perfect. You say, I've made mistakes, I've done things I shouldn't do. Well, that's, that's not what we're talking about in this context. Well, what this context really means is the idea of grown up or maturity in Christ. It's not about never making mistakes, it's about being a mature believer. And there's quite a radical difference between a mature believer and an immature believer. Here's how one scholar explained it. He said, a spiritually mature believer can discern whether something is from the Lord or from the flesh. He can detect the workings of the flesh and judge it immediately, and he refuses to allow it to get a grip on him. An immature Christian will not recognize the flesh when it presents itself. He is not aware of the spiritual equipment God provides to combat the flesh. As he grows in grace, he will be able to identify the dangers that lurk in his life and know the principles which will deal with them. If he does not know the dangers, he is in serious trouble And if he does not know God's principles for dealing with him, he is in serious trouble. You know, it's interesting to me when we start thinking about the difference between mature believers and immature believers. Oftentimes an immature believer may not understand that he's immature. And sometimes it takes that mature believer coming along beside him and saying, you know what, I'd like to help you along. I'd like to help you better understand who Christ is and how to live your life to bring him glory. You say, okay, this this is a neat model, Adam. So, all right, Paul says that we should train and teach the immature believers... And we have people on all parts of that spectrum. They need to teach them and train them in wisdom to understand who Christ is, understand how to apply this knowledge to their lives. And then when that happens, we'll have all these mature believers. That's a great model, Adam. Why don't we have all these mature believers now? (laughs) I think the problem is we failed to understand this model. I think the problem is for so many people, we believe that once they're baptized, we're done. Christ says you need to take these people that are freshly baptized, these people that are new believers, and you need to begin to disciple them. And you need to begin to train them. And it could be a lifelong process, but ultimately we need to be mature in Christ. You say, great, what does that look like? What's what's a mature believer actually look like? A mature believer is a person who is interested in doing the things of the Lord in all aspects of his or her life. A mature believer is a person who wants to be transformed more into the image of Christ. A mature believer is a person who wants to grow in knowledge and grow in wisdom and increase in understanding exactly who God is. A mature believer is a person that wants to know Christ on a more mature, on a deeper and deeper level. A mature believer is a person who's sold out for Jesus, who's interested in doing only the things that the Lord has called that person to do. And you say, that's such a huge list, Adam. I'm not sure I'm ever going to be there. You're right. You probably won't. But here's the point. You continue to try. <laughs> right? You're never going to get there. And I'm going to give you a little bit, uh, just a little bit of a clue here. If you ever think you've arrived at that place of spiritual maturity, you probably haven't. <laughs> and so what do we do? We wake up every morning and we say, Lord, I'm not sure how I'm going to do it again today, but I trust you and I'm taking one step closer. And I'm taking one step closer and I'm taking one step closer. And day by day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, and for many people, decade by decade by decade, we grow 
and we strive and we reach and we try to seek Christ in all things. And as a mature believer, at some point, we kind of recognize this model. At some point in our journey, we say to a couple of immature believers, you know what, why don't you guys just walk with me? I don't exactly know where I'm going here. I know what I'm trying to get to. I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to get there. I know I'm going to hit pitfalls and make mistakes, but I want you guys to walk along beside me. I want you to be able to see what God is doing in my heart and what God is doing in my life. Understand that I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to get there just like you guys are. And maybe as we pray together, and maybe as we learn together, maybe as we study together, God can be glorified. And you can learn more about Him, and through me, you can be blessed to do the things that Christ has called you to do. It takes a learner, and it takes a teacher. It takes us understanding this model, and it takes us doing something about it. So here's the question we ask ourselves. Where are you this morning? What, what end of that scale are you on? Are you the mature believer? Are you the immature believer? Are you somewhere in between? Is God leading you to speak truth into the life of an immature believer? Is God speaking into your heart about finding a mature believer that can speak to you and can guide you and can direct you? I can only imagine if every mature believer in this church would take just one disciple, just one younger Christian and begin to pour into their hearts and pour into their lives and pour into their minds. Can you imagine what that would do for our church in the next six months, in the next year? Can you imagine what that would do for the kingdom of Christ? Paul says it's a real clear model. All you got to do is start the process. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we willing to step up to the plate and do all the things that Christ has called us to do to be the men and women that God has called us to be? Or are we content to simply sit on the sidelines and watch? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done in our hearts and all you're going to continue to do, Lord. We thank you for this just crystal clear model of discipleship. And we see it over and over, Lord, in Scripture. This is, Lord, we understand not the only place, but I pray that we would begin to understand the importance of mentoring and discipleship and pouring into the lives of younger believers. I pray, Father, you would give us the strength and the courage if we are mature to find a young believer to begin to speak to and to begin to talk to and to begin to disciple. Lord, if we're an immature believer, I pray you would help us to see clearly that we need to grow and to find that person, to seek that person out, Father, that is more mature, that can teach us, that can train us. And Father, in, in that process of building those relationships all through our church, Lord, I pray you would do incredible things. And I pray your name would be glorified on all the earth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you a couple of minutes if you want to come and pray about this idea of discipleship and mentoring. Or if you want to repent of your sins and accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or if you want to join this church. This is your time now as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.